questions. What drove you out there? Reading your biography, you've you've, been, you've lived across the world, um, experienced. Uh, I think you were in, in China in 1989 for Tiananmen yeah. Square. So you, you're no stranger to to these sort of um, to moments of of, of, his, of political and historic violence. But what? There's obviously, I can hear the kind of joy about, and obviously you, you spent much of your, your your life now. So, what made you go out there? You remembered the the, the Economist piece in 1987. You're obviously paying sort of some attention. I was I was in uh, Tokyo when the war in Yugoslavia began, and I wanted to go and uh, cover it. I was working at that time for the Guardian, and they already had uh, journalists there. And so I proposed in 1991 when I was back in London that on my way back to Tokyo I would just visit and um, have a look and uh, see what was happening. And I went to Sarajevo, which was still peaceful at that point. I did several interviews and I remembered the sound of the trams in the centre of uh, Sarajevo, the fact that every interview was accompanied by this very thick Bosnian uh, coffee. <laughs> and and this dreadful pop music, which I never got to like, but always seemed to be playing. And also the fact that everybody smoked all the time. And people tell me that's reflected in the book. People are always smoking. Um, and I went from Sarajevo to Dubrovnik, and I was there at the beginning of the siege. And I was in Dubrovnik for about three weeks. And during that period, the prime minister in Japan resigned. So I was actually not in the place that I should have been. Um, and I went back to Japan and very quickly realised that the only news story in the world was in the place that I had just left and I really very much wanted to go back to it. And I remembered those conversations that I'd had in Sarajevo in uh, September 1991 because they seemed to me to touch on issues that were um, important beyond the Western Balkans. They were talking about inclusivity, they were talking about toleration, they were talking about the inability of violence to advance a project, a political project. People tend to dismiss the comparisons with the Spanish Civil War, but I think one valid comparison is that in 1936 in Spain, the issues that were being fought over were issues that came to dominate the public discourse for the next 10 or 15 years. Mm. And I think in Bosnia and Herzegovina, those are issues that we're now dealing with in terms of Brexit and Trump and so on and so forth. They are about how do you build a nation state? Is it a nation state the same as a state? Or should mm. we just be looking at states that don't mention the word nation? Those were uh, issues that were being discussed. And really, I thought this is a place to, to, to see history uh, unfolding. So a year after I had been in Dubrovnik, I, I went back to Sarajevo. And uh, whenever I mentioned to people I was here in 1991, before it looked like this, they were always so pleased. And they said, yeah, well, you'll know what it was like. It was, right. you know, it was such a great place to live. There was a tremendous amount of civic pride. And, I mean, I come from Glasgow. I know that, that, that feeling where you feel as if you have to educate somebody very quickly so that all of their you know, possible perceptions beforehand, you'll know that those are not... The reality is much, much nicer. And I found that in Sarajevo, I really recognised that same syndrome, that people feel as if they, they must give a good account of their mm-hmm. city. There's a great deal that they're, they're proud of. Um, and then during the course of the conflict, I felt that a lot of these issues were still being fought over, but this horrible narrative which was sent out endlessly from the nationalist point of view began to have the upper hand. 
and people began to see the war in precisely the communal terms that many, many people there never wanted it to be about in the first place and, and did not subscribe to. Uh, and if we did the same in the UK, if uh, I mean, well, we, we have had that experience where it really took 30 years before anybody would look at the conflict in Northern Ireland in terms other than there are two religions and they don't go on, when in fact there were many, many more complex mm. issues that were involved. Brad, who I think is an American, yeah. and Anna. I'd rather be covering a knitwear conference in Phoenix or a boat show in Maine, Brad said. No, you wouldn't. He glanced at her. Probably not. I suppose the question I wanted to ask was, as a writer, although you've been in these, 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 other, these, these politically charged situations, it must be something different about heading into a, somewhere where you know there's, there's going to be violence and your own life is going to be in danger. What was it? Is there something in you that was seeking that out or learned to control the fear maybe <clears throat> that you might have felt? Uh, I think that's definitely an issue. And having written a novel in which one of the main characters is a journalist, what I'm about to say might sound uh, uh, disingenuous, but I, I have always been sceptical about journalists making themselves part of the story. And I felt, when I was there, uh, after I got uh, injured in a landmine explosion, uh, I was briefly taken to a basement where the only medicine that the Bosnian clinic had was some paracetamol. Both my legs were broken. And my one of my legs was tied to a broomstick with string, which was the only thing that they had as a, to, to fix the, the bones. And then I was taken from there by British troops because I was an accredited UN journalist. And I was very conscious at that time of the fact that whatever this experience and however dramatic it is for me, there are these other people lying on the same concrete floor and they are not going to get taken away and given morphine and, and you know, nice, um, the, the, the latest uh, medical treatment. So I'm very conscious of really having to have an apologia there that says whatever my experience was, it really was nothing compared to someone who did not choose to go there. It was my choice to go there, and whatever happened was my responsibility. Whereas when the war comes to your town and you're, you're, you're peacefully going about your, your business and you have no choice in this, um, I think that is really the the, 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 the experience that um, should be described. Um, Particularly in the ha- case of the siege, actually. Yeah. One of the things that yeah. was, was so propel- propulsive about the novel was the sense that ca- characters either couldn't can't get out yeah. or that they were divided from family members who had been away for whatever reason and couldn't that's get out. That's right, and I think that's very important that you know most of... Uh, the the people in this situation didn't choose to be in it, and if you're a journalist, you chose to be in it. So that's that's your lookout. And um, having said that, I think that uh, there are all of the things that you described, and it's a little bit like a drug. I mean, it, it is uh, something that is so particular that it becomes uh, something. The experience is almost uh, tangible, and I would also say that for many years I was a business journalist and in many respects I think that was a harder job to do because uh, if you're describing conflict, basically you simply can describe what you see and that in itself will be newsworthy. Um, I should also say that most of my prognostications about how the conflict was going to develop were wrong. 
and I found from the experience, and I don't have a lot of experience, it was basically over a period of two or three years that I, I, I did that kind of reporting. My experience was that when you're in the middle of the event, and uh, as you mentioned, I was at Tiananmen Square in 1989, uh, and when I was in the middle of Tiananmen Square, I was thinking of Stongdao's description in Scarlet and Black of Waterloo, where uh, Julian Sorrell doesn't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think it was Julian Sorrell who was there, but one of the characters, he, he just sees people going that way and horses coming this way, and he really has no idea. So the paradox is that the person who was in the middle of the mm-hmm. battle can't actually doesn't have a bird's eye view. He actually ha- only has the view from from where he's looking. So I found that um, uh, in many respects, I, I I was possibly not that good at it. Or alternatively, the viewpoint from inside the conflict is very often a privileged viewpoint because you can see what is happening on the ground, but it's not privileged in terms of understanding the mechanics of the bigger picture. And I used to think, yeah, these people who are covering talks in Geneva and New York, actually, they they would you would be better to speak to them about how this conflict is going to develop than to speak to somebody who's actually reporting the the violence um, where it's happening. Um, so I think that was one of the aspects of journalism uh, that was uh, noteworthy. I think the the final point I would make would be that there is a way of experiencing other people in situations of conflict which is uh, magical is definitely not the right word but maybe <laughs> mystical where you you see the, the the common gravity is such that you dispense with many of the uh, peripheral aspects of engaging with somebody and you see what's important and in many cases I remember being hugely impressed, I mean movingly impressed by people's uh, uh, dignity and um, generosity uh, in ways that probably would have been difficult to glimpse if mm. we hadn't been in a situation of conflict uh, where um, people would simply articulate very simple but morally unimpeachable sentiments. Um, there was one man I remember saying, I will not hate those people in the hills. Um, and I, I found that, uh, yeah, I would have thought... We would not be having this conversation if we were meeting in London. We're only having this conversation because we're in this strange city that's being bombarded. But the fact that you've just said that seems to me to be, wow, you know, th- this this violence does not destroy all that is beautiful in, in, in humanity. In fact, very often beautiful things emerge from that experience. So I think that's one of the, the aspects of um, writing or reporting um, uh, conflict, which is actually it's not a it's not a down, it's an up. You know that's a that's a positive thing. Well, the other characters in this novel, Terry, who's a a doctor who's been sent to um, take a, a a young boy who's very very ill um, and to airlift him out and take him back to London for 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 a life saving operation. Um, I, I wondered how that whether that describes your initial experiences of being in a war zone, war zone which, which seems to be a mixture of utter bewilderment and, and confusion on one hand, and then and fear as 
as the sorts of things that maybe if you're told in, in some sort of preparation, you'll, you'll be shot at, um, there will be explosions, uh, cannot possibly convey uh, the, re- the reality of a sniper trying to kill you. Do you, do you remember what it was like to first enter that, that war zone? And, and, and what did you learn about yourself? Were you able to cope with, with that? I'm going to say I'd probably be weeping on the floor of the nearest... Um, yeah, I, I remember in Dubrovnik, um, I was with a soldier and we went with some other soldiers to collect the body of an electricity worker who had been killed when, the, in the first day of the siege, the um, electricity substation just outside Dubrovnik was blown up. It was a massive explosion. And uh, when we were on the way to this spot, the soldier beside me said, are you scared? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, um, I'm glad you are. I am too. It would be stupid not to be. And that was kind of a valuable uh, lesson for me because I didn't, uh, I, I think, ever sort of feel um, gung-ho or bombastic or particularly, you know, I, you know um, uh, reckless or cool. Um, I think that was, in my experience, something that uh, tends to ebb and flow. And some days that would seem relatively not a big deal. And then other days, for no particular reason, it would seem a much, much more uh, intrusive possibility, uh, the possibility of um, uh, being a, a victim rather than a reporter. I always found, for me, I will never understand the alchemy by which soldiers obey orders because as a journalist, you can always say, well, you know, we'll just go as far as the corner there and, and we'll see what we can see. Whereas as a soldier, they'll say, go to the corner and then go to the next corner and you, you have to do what you're told. And I always find that just inexplicable that anybody would subject themselves to that kind of discipline. Um, so I think also, you know, it was at your own discretion what you would, where you would go and um, uh, what you would see. Again, that was very much based on the fact that I always felt if you choose to go there, then live with it. So again, I'm not even particularly comfortable about talking about that because there were people who would go to the next corner simply because they felt a civic obligation to to do that. Um, And I admired those people very much. Very fine poet, Carolyn Forche, has written about the idea of bearing witness, things you must have borne witness to. You must have seen people uh, die in the most horrible ways. Again, one of the things about the novel that's so fascinating is about the way war transforms people. I want to ask you about, obviously, the most overt physical transformation you went through, but to go through those, to bear witness to to that kind of violence, which most people could live their entire life and never um, get, get anywhere near at all, did you discover things about yourself, about a capacity to to be shocked by, it, to be or to to, to endure it? Uh, well, I, I think um, that again uh, comes to the issue of the usefulness or otherwise of describing catastrophe, and I suppose the most immediate response to that is if you describe the sorrow and grief of a family that's been bereaved because a member of the family has just been killed and you've spoken to these people at the hospital, you're 
rationale would be by conveying the depth of the grief that these people are experiencing, you might somehow communicate the, the urgency of addressing this conflict and bringing it to an end. I suppose that would be the, the argument of mm. war journalism, that it's not prurient, it's actually to, to, to illustrate what's happening. And some of the images that came out of Aleppo, for example, when there was that famous photograph of all these people in one street when they had been told that there was going to be a, a, a point where they could leave the city, was so shocking that um, uh, it may have galvanised some of the diplomatic effort to um, stop the conflict. The photograph of little uh, Alan, who was face down on the beach uh, uh, when he'd be, where he'd been washed up on the Turkish beach after his um, boat had sunk, likewise... I don't think that's prudent. I think that was an image that was able to communicate something mm -hmm. that was happening and galvanise people to do something about it. So in that sense, I think um, there is a there's a there's a a basic um, support, theoretical and abstract support for that kind of uh, recording of other people's misery. Um, there were occasions where I felt that it was almost better to put the notebook away and, and, and stand respectfully or, or, or just to withdraw because it struck me that, what is this? It's not tourism. It shouldn't be. We're not here to... We're not here to... We somehow have to be witnesses in a way that's possibly... Uh, not so intrusive, not so gauche, not so um, you know vulgar as to just uh, come into other people's grief uninvited. And I think that issue can arise. But and there were other times I remember in Dubrovnik somebody taking me by the arm very angrily and saying, "Come and see this." You know, I mean, just don't, don't. If you're here, do your job. And mm. that was also. Um, so that's the other side of that coin where people would say, yes, write you this down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the fascinating themes through the novel, I suppose, is the intensity of it. The way that an intensity of emotion, and I guess the, the two poles were anger and, and fear, can skew a kind of perception. And, and again, it, all the characters... Experience that at various points. Brad, I was interested, I suppose, by Brad as maybe a proxy for your experience that uh, he gets into trouble almost with the, his his editors back in 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 Britain. Yeah. Um, his colleague thinks that he's perhaps losing the plot. He's drinking too much. Um, his own personal investment in what he's witnessing is actually perhaps affecting his journalism, his objectivity. To use an awful word, in a negative way. Were, were those problems that you were that you were? I don't mean drinking necessarily but <laughs> um. no definitely and I think uh, one of the things um, uh, it's not a best example but in a way I think it's illustrative um, when I was in Dubrovnik I was filing there, there was it was pretty much um, uh, pre-internet in the sense that you still had dedicated lines uh, mm. to the newsroom where you could send from your Tandy, you know, your little incredibly primitive um, uh, laptop from that period. Um, but there was no way of doing that from Dubrovnik because the phones were cut and the only way of, of getting a, um, a story out was uh, using a satellite phone. 
Anyway, I went with one of the European Union monitors outside of the city and up the hill where the man who was driving was very, very nervous because he was able to get a signal there on the phone that they had in their uh, car. And I read very, very quickly my story to a copy taker in London. And I said, um, one of the byproducts of uh, Dubrovnik's ecclesiastical tradition is that they have candles because there are so many monasteries and they've been able to distribute these candles because there's no electricity for light. And the copy taker in London said, just tell me how do you spell, how do you spell ecclesiastical? <laughs> I, I never... <laughs> I'm obviously not conveying <laughs> the circumstances of sending this story. Um, so there was that sort of juxtaposition of not really getting over the, the fact that it's quite different here from the situation on the other end of the telephone line, um, despite the fact that that was your job to do mm-hmm. that. Um, so I think, a, a, yes, yeah, I found that a lot... Um, but then I found that in Tokyo. I mean, I think if you're reporting from another country, your perceptions very quickly become different from the people to whom you're reporting, and there's always that tension. Is that um, because you're getting emotionally involved in the story? Uh, yeah, well, it's also because I think um, it, when I was in Tokyo, I found that if you didn't have samurai or bushido or the emperor in the story, there was a sort of a disappointment, but then they could always put it into the headlines. <laughs> so, I mean, there are ways of looking at other countries that are kind of un- immediately understandable. And when you get to the other country, you discover, of course, it's very different from that. So you start to... to that's your perception uh, is, is different. And when that comes back, people think, yeah, but well, that's not really what we're you know, mm-hmm. thinking in terms of. Um, and I think that happens anywhere and it would happen if you were reporting from one part of the United Kingdom to another there are certain shorthand uh, ways of communicating different cultures and different societies and if you don't use those then you you tend to make it more difficult for the reader and you're making it more difficult for the reader when you're actually trying to be more comprehensive and more accurate and give an authentic picture Mm -hmm.